everyone, and thanks for joining us today. Um, I'm delighted to be hosting a panel to talk about diversity and inclusion in the games industry as part of the Best Places to Work Awards in the UK. We'll start with just a couple of introductions and then we'll head into our discussion. So uh, just a quick hello from me. Um, I'm Liz Prince. I'm the business manager of a specialist recruitment business called Amicus. Um, We're based in the UK. As a woman in the games industry and definitely at the sharp end of the talent pipeline, it was clear that more needed to be done to increase diversity in studios across the games industry. And I wanted to help to make that change. Um, So a couple of years ago, I launched an initiative called Putting the G into Gaming, um, just to give some focus to the work that I wanted to do in in that area, and especially around attracting women from other industries into games, um, and importantly, changing culture so that we could retain them. Um, I'm joined by Rena, by Emma, and by Philip today, uh, so I'll let them introduce themselves to you too. Um, Emma, you're at my top left. Thank you very much. Um, So I'm Emma Smith. I'm Head of Talent at Creative Assembly um, and I spearhead the legacy project for the studio, um, which is our commitment to diversity and inclusion through education and community outreach. Amazing. Thanks. And hi, Philip. Hey, so I'm uh, Philip Mays. I'm the Managing Director of Mighty Kingdom, um, founded back in 2010 and based down here in Adelaide, Australia. We're a team of just over 130 people and one of the most diverse studios here in Australia. Fantastic. Can't wait. Rena, hi. Hi. Hi, Liz. I'm Rena Goldenberg-Lynch. Um, I'm a founder of Voice at the Table. and um, We're an inclusion, diversity and inclusion consultancy working with organisations to make them more inclusive. Amazing. Really excited for today. So... I said that we were going to be talking about diversity and inclusion, Um, but our topic that we've decided on today is called, we're not talking about diversity, we're talking about our future. So, Rena, what what do we mean we're not talking about diversity, we're talking about our future? Yeah, we we changed that title because in in the past couple of years, I've noticed a real diversity and inclusion fatigue, if you will. Lots of businesses are looking at diversity and inclusion as, yes, something to consider and something that's important to them, but they put it into a little corner or into a project and not focusing and not realizing the, the genuine benefits that you can get from being diverse and inclusive. Um, but of course, if you think about it, as many CEOs do, um, the future is about diversity. It gives you access to creativity, innovation, to a broader pool of talent, and um, everything that you need is about diversity and inclusion today. So um, let's not talk about diversity and inclusion, let's talk about the future, how we can make ourselves more diverse more inclusive, more successful in the future. So if we're talking about um, inclusion and that's our focus, um, in terms of being the opposite of that, what what are the impacts of exclusion in, in your experience? Philip, have you anything to think about when we're talking about exclusion? Yeah, I think... The um, what Rena said there about the benefits of, of, of an inclusive workspace, you can 
almost look at the uh, the inverse of that of being as as a, what happens when you are, you know as the impacts of exclusion when you're only drawing from a limited talent pool or only drawing from a limited set of ideas you start to become a bit of an echo chamber as an organization or as an industry and you don't uh, you, you start missing opportunities because you can't see things you can't see what you can't see right you're only hearing from people who look like you or sound like you or behave like you then you're only going to get that and it just becomes a diminishing pool of opportunity um, I think the the way of articulating it as talking about the future is is the best way to frame it. One of the, the biggest pieces of advice that I give to to companies that are starting to to think about diversity and inclusion is to imagine the future of their of their business. Think about where they want to be in five and ten years time, and start to write down some goals and, and start to actually have a plan that you can work towards and start to have targets that you can actually measure and hold yourself accountable to. Because I think that's the only way you can measure traction or, or change over time. Emma, you're nodding. What, uh, what do you feel about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's, there's a big, there's a big journey that I think a lot of, um, a lot of studios and, and across our industry and certainly something that, that I've seen at CA and um, particularly with, with the, through the lens of recruiting and through working with graduates and, um, as a part of our women's group, at creative assembly that you know you you need to kind of know where you're at at the moment and taking that time to be aware of you know who are we where do we want to go what are we doing right now and being really clear on your intent and focus and where you want to want to go and be able to engage with people outside of your own organization learn from other studios or other people that perhaps arrived a little bit more where you want to go or they're a little bit further ahead um so that you know you don't you don't have to look at um where you where you haven't got to in terms of being inclusive as something that you're doing wrong but mm. as a voyage of discovery um, and wanting to arrive at somewhere better and and that sounds really great doesn't it um but why why are we not further on then within the games industry if you know, if everybody thinks about their, their voyage or where they want to be, I mean, Rena, surely every every organisation is thinking about their five year plan and you know where they want to be as a as a business. So, uh, how how do we start to integrate diversity into that conversation? Well, I think that's the big challenge, uh, Liz, because uh, diversity and inclusion is as a concept is diff- easy to understand to actually implement takes a lot of time and it's a big change, a culture change, a behavioral change. It takes time to implement. Um, And what I always say is start on the journey whenever you are. Understand what your priorities are in terms of diversity and inclusion. And then it's a step-by-step, little steps, small steps, culture change related steps um, that then take you forward to progress you down the line. Um, and where you start doesn't really matter as long as you continue to progress. Um, so, so, so it's the understanding that you're not going to be able to achieve it within a year or two. Um, and I think in an industry that is developing and growing so fast as the game sector, it's difficult to align something that isn't going to be there as quickly as your game development or whatever it is that is growing so fast. 
but it, it's about I suppose, having that um, focus on the future and having the patience to stick with it, to persevere. Mm. So what, what, yeah, sort can... of, what, what sort of priorities? I'm just thinking about, so really you were talking about set your priorities, set your vision. What if somebody doesn't even know where to start with that? Philip, where did, where did you start with that? Talk to us a little <laughs> bit about, about your journey. I was gonna. I was gonna back up what Rena was saying. It's it's been a, a ten year journey for us. Mm-hmm. We we started quite close to what our industry average here, is here in Australia, which is about a sort of a twenty percent um, non male. Like, you know, if you, if you want to um, think of it in those terms, uh, and and we were very close to that line. And it took a lot of it took a lot of small steps to get us to where we are now, which is very close to parity in, in, in terms of gender. Um, you know, we I, I think we've talked about it. We think about diversity at Mighty Kingdom, not just through the visible lenses of, you know, um, ethnicity or, or gender, but we think about diversity of thought. Uh, you know, one of the, the things I like to say is you can have a 50-50 gender parity in your studio, but if you all went to the same private school, you're all thinking the same thoughts, right? So we try and get beyond that and actually, you know, make sure that we are, when we're evaluating talent and, and how we're bringing people into the studio, we're thinking about all that they bring, not just thinking about the the technical skills that they have. Like we, we know we can improve someone's technical ability with our training and our, and our in-house tools, but it's all the other lived experience that they bring that can add to that, um, you know, to the to the ideas and and the discussion that happens around the studio. But it was it, it did start for us um, with exactly that measuring where we were at and having a having a vision of where we wanted to be and, and and holding ourselves accountable and saying, you know, is it is it is it good enough? Is our current process making us move closer to that goal or further away from it? And when we started putting that lens on things, you could start to pick apart parts of your hiring process, parts of your recruitment, your onboarding, your training, your, your, uh, um, you know, your retention, and you can start to understand where the gaps are and start making um, changes. And it was those sequence of small changes that really started to compound over time that really, and once you, once you get started, I find that you start to build momentum. And as your studio looks more diverse it becomes more diverse because you're getting more people involved in solving those problems and so suddenly you're looking at other other things and other opportunities and so there's a bit of a snowball effect to it so stick with it like you say it might not happen overnight but uh you know uh, make sure that you are always being honest and 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 and, uh, and measuring where you're at mm. uh, uh, Thinking about your very first sort of part of that journey, Philip, I think you you started with saying something about your um, the the people that you were. Um, don't be a jerk. Was it something like that? <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Actually, it gets back to you know, a lot of the things that I hear, and when you talk to game companies, is they aren't they're often in survival mode, right? And they're often thinking about what do I need to do to, do to survive, and and when you're in that mode, it's hard to think of anything beyond, you know, payroll, next payroll or, or the next quarter. And so thinking about diversity and, and those timeframes just often isn't is in front of mind. Um, we used to we used to have these little mantras that we used to say. One of them was uh, surviving is winning, right? Just turning up uh, year on year at GDC, you start to pick up opportunity because there's a diminishing pool. But we sort of realized that that wasn't uh, that wasn't enough, right? You, it, surviving is one thing, but thriving is actually what you want. You want your business to be growing and, and achieving goals. And so we sort of pivoted a few of our mantras. And one of them, yes, was don't be a jerk, which 
we, we thought, you know, if you're going to be in business or, you know, dealing with, with, with customers, dealing with employees, make sure you're not a jerk in those, in, in those interactions. But that really is sort of the lowest bar to clear in terms of, uh, you know, the, of, of what you could be doing. So we, we changed that to say we should be an example and we wanted to hold ourselves up and, and the things that we do as an example that others could follow to show that you can do these things and have success at the same time, that it's not an either or uh, situation. In fact, one can feed the other. And um, so, yeah, we, we often encourage everyone within our studio to get out, to talk, to be active and visible in this space. And, and um, yeah, definitely that, that's helped as well. The, the more visible we've been, the more, again, the, the more people see us and the more people um, apply and then the more diverse we get over time. Emma, what, what did you set out as a priority when you were thinking about starting the journey with the Legacy Project? The, the, it, it, was a, it was a bit of a critical time in my life at that doing that point. Um, we started the Legacy Project really as a way to to support the local community, particularly with educators, but also we saw there were... Um, there were lots of people that didn't really understand who Creative Assembly was in our local area. They, they knew that it was a big company, but they didn't know that we were a game studio. And there was a there was a perception, um, you know, around the games industry that I really wanted to change, that it was an unprofessional environment when we know that that is absolutely not the case. Um, but when I was going out to schools and speaking to the educators and quite often the parents, I was noticing that, a lot of the the girls were really turned off by the industry, but also parents didn't feel that it was it was an environment that they wanted to encourage their children to go into. Um, but actually, by showing the children, the educators, and the parents the environment, rather than just telling them, giving them those real experiences, it started changing their perceptions. And, you know, as Philip's saying, it's, it's a ripple effect. Then they would go and speak to other other friends in school about it. And then they'd start getting interested. And then the parents would actually say that they wanted to come and work for us. And that's an entirely different, <laughs> a different game that I wasn't necessarily looking for at that time. But it was you know, the, the 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 students, the graduates, the parents were just tired of being told about stuff. They wanted to see it, so we started expressing those lived-in experiences as a game studio and really opening up the doors to that, um, with with the view that we can change those perceptions and we would encourage a bit of self-confidence in particularly young women. Um, to want to come into the games industry and then when they arrive we can really wrap our arms around them and, and bring them through. I think I think that's um, that's a really interesting place to talk about actually um, Emma because we were thinking we wanted to think about the obstacles to inclusion and I think that perception of the industry that if, if we're truthful we've probably as an industry promoted ourselves to boys over the last sort of 30 years in terms of some a lot of the games that have maybe been produced and the marketing that's been done so to sort of now be thinking well what why aren't girls interested in the industry it's like 
yeah absolutely and around the time i launched the legacy project um i found out that i was having a baby and my baby is a little girl um so i'm a mother of a daughter um who's who's quite the force of nature um but i wanted the world to be right for for young girls before i became a mother of a daughter and i'm absolutely nailed to to the world the vision of the world i i think that she should deserve to have and every woman should deserve to have where they they don't see those barriers um they see them as challenges to overcome um and by working and thinking in that way actually it, it's not it's 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 evolved past it being for for females but for actually anybody who has that lack of confidence or self-belief or feels that feel that games isn't somewhere they can they can truly arrive and bring their whole creative selves to it's something that every everybody should be able to follow that path if that's something that they desire and trying to ignite that fire and that passion in them and their parents and educators that this is a really exciting vibrant place to to have a professional career mm. not this you know this crazy things i see the games that my daughter are playing and i'm playing them with her and she's still quite little and she's talking about well do people make this did someone draw this mm. did someone make this on a computer so that that's already there so and I inspirational. Take it, you know just disappear because yeah. someone told us she should be doing something else yeah and I guess there's also an element of peer pressure isn't there when you know when you get to a certain point in school and um you know maybe it's not the coolest thing to be interested in uh, not games but tech generally I think there's definitely a massive fall off um, in schools isn't there for STEM subjects for for young girls it absolutely is but we've got another another area i think that you know we we're getting better with particularly in the uk but we can do better is where there is a massive lack of access to technology mm -hmm. um, we talk about those brilliant lived-in experiences where people come from all different backgrounds you know but if someone's in a deprived and privileged area they're not going to have access to a huge amount of funds and they're not going to have access to technology which will immediately impact their education um, and why we worked really hard to get all the laptop sites through next gen skills to students who really needed it because they were in danger of not having their education but actually not being able to have any contact with their friends and their tutors and also from to have um you know that that moment to be able to take them take themselves away from you know perhaps being in an environment at home where they're not being entirely supported education and, and social wise um so there there's there's more to come in terms of barriers the practical things you can do as an organization to think about access to technology um but also there's you know there's this policy and government things that we can do as well um yeah, it's, it's, there's lots that we can do, but actually there are there are small practical things that we can think about. You know, how do we how do we make sure that we speak to lots of different people from lots of different backgrounds? They don't. It, it's sometimes it's just the really simple things. Do you have a laptop? Can you get access to software? If you don't have that, you know, it doesn't matter whether they they love love games or whether they're super smart. If they ain't got that, they. No, they're not progressing. No, mm -hmm. um, 
Rena, from just thinking about outside of the games industry for a couple of minutes, what, what other obstacles to inclusion have you seen from in general across organisations? I think really the biggest obstacle is what we don't know. Um, and there's a, there's a big word for it, which we call unconscious bias, that uh, people hate. Um, and it's because it has such a negative connotation about who we are as people. Um, this unconscious bias is something that we all have. It's, it's the way our brain works. Um, and, but, but it's not a good thing. People don't see, think of it as a good thing. So we try not to um, overcome it or, or mitigate against that. Um, but unfortunately, because we are all programmed in a certain way that society works, um, if we continue to apply the same rules to everybody, then we fail to differentiate between the different backgrounds and experiences. Um, so it's, it's, it's knowing how to mitigate our unconscious bias that to me is the biggest thing I've seen uh, it's 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 not that easy but it's definitely doable and going back to what Emma said what Philip said about little step ripple effects raising awareness all those things will help um, I can uh, just touching on that uh, unconscious bias you can use it to your advantage like I've, I've often found when it comes to diversity and inclusion, hiring is, is literally the most important thing that you do, right? And we, we've taken a long time to, to refine that process. And part of our process is, is to involve a lot of different people in the studio in the reviews and interviews. And one of the things I've found is that people like people that remind them of themselves. And when it's just a bunch of white guys making that decision, then, you know, surprise, surprise, you end up with, a, you know, more of the same. But the more inclusive we've got it and the more diverse our studio has become, the more it becomes because they're looking for people who remind them of them when they were younger. And, and so again, it, it just, it, you, you get that little snowball effect. You get that, uh, that momentum that you build. Um, so you, you can use those biases to your advantage if you're, if you're clever about how you design your, your, your systems. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just a, just a couple on, on top with saying recruiting is, is the gateway. It is how you, how you get into that organization and hiring managers have a huge responsibility on who they work with um, and a large part of the work that I'm doing at CA at the moment is spending time and having sessions with hiring managers and in, encouraging that it's okay to be vulnerable and talk to each other saying you know but actually maybe I've made decisions with hiring in the past that actually haven't served us well how can I be better um, and being comfortable with being uncomfortable about things that you've and decisions that you've made as a part of recruiting and through that that act again is self-awareness um and and just checking yourself more and more hiring managers are doing that um and there at some points have gone hey actually you've got so many people on this panel it might be a little bit overwhelming so some you can go <laughs> completely the other way and um and and try to do try to get too many people involved and it's remembering the candidate experience like how do they feel about how they've interacted with you as an organization did you make them feel like they were heard did you feel like you gave them a voice did you really listen um you know and some biases are not necessarily are they like me but um you know it could be that they 
went to the same university as somebody else in the room and or they might have the same hobbies and you think oh no great they've done they've done the local marathon so have i so that clearly they're an awesome person um so yeah it, it, it can work in lots of different ways but with with recruitment again it it is how people people come in and helping hiring managers really be and and yourself going through that journey of been thinking what have how have i thought before what, what are my biases how can i know that i'm doing it and then you can do something about it so yeah mm -hmm. in the words of Maya Angelou when when you know better be better and you and yeah. that's where the magic is that's when the real change comes in it's, it's going back to be the example isn't it i think um one of the things you've just said about hobbies there again from a recruitment perspective we very often see hirers when when they get a cv the first thing they do is kind of flick to the the back page you know see what the hobbies are oh they like man united you know and all of a sudden you've got that sort of affinity with somebody before you've even assessed their skill set so it, it's very real i think even if people don't necessarily know they're doing it and um, philip one other thing on on hiring that i remember you saying to me was um, you you started to consider more people in the maybe pile as well. Mm, yeah, we, we we implemented a policy where a, a maybe becomes a yes, and and this sort of gets to our um, our hiring process. It, it is relatively elongated. There's a lot of touch points, and and uh, M is 100% correct. You need to make sure that you are considering the candidate and setting expectations so that they understand where they're at and how long it will take. Um, we often say that this is the first interaction that they're going to have with your company, with your culture. So what, what message are you sending? You want to make sure that that's a pleasurable experience, even if it's a no. Um, but what we, what we decided was uh, that that first interview is quite short, like a 15 minute um, interview with just a few people. But uh, rather than just knee jerk, no, a lot of people, we, we put the, the maybe pile into a, the, the face to face because some people are terrible at putting CVs together, but they're fantastic in, in an interview. Uh, or vice versa, right? And you want to make sure you're not just um, looking a certain way. We um, we run a we run a graduate program where we've we've hired uh, I think sort of 32 graduates over the last four years. And we've one of the things that we did in that process is we actually removed CVs from the early screening process because it's so variable at that rate, and and you're all graduates, are all quite similar in, in terms of their experience. And so we wanted to we designed a hiring process that got them to reveal who they are and 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 talk about um, and you know, sort of uncover their values and uncover their, um, you know, their, their motivations and their drivers, and, and sort of try to evaluate the people as well as the the, the, um, the skills. So we sort of tried to um, remove a lot of that bias from that from that early selection process and let let the um, the candidates sort of speak for themselves. And so we hide a lot of information, we anonymize a lot of it in the early stages, and and just sort of reveal it later once we get to interviews. And that was that was that was fascinating for me with the behind the scenes view, looking at the the diversity or the, the um, you know, how the, that changed through the different rounds uh, year on year. In the first year where we didn't have that process in the second and third when we did, and you start to see that more candidates from uh, diverse backgrounds make it through when you sort of change that filter criteria at the start. Yeah, um, and, you know, we took that, we, we took that and folded that back into our general recruiting as well and, and changed the way that we assessed and evaluated people based on, on, on that. And don't you also think, though, that when when you're assessing graduates, um, I, I just remember me as a graduate 
you kind of feel as though you're really scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of what you've got to say. You know, I think I'm sure my violin prowess was something that I put on my CV, you know, and I think I took the violin for about three months. So, you know, I think that type of assessment where the CV actually isn't even part of it is, is when it's values based. I think that's fantastic. Just wanted to really quickly, while we were in that sort of hiring um, piece, just think about selection as well, because um, I, I still see, again, from our perspective, um, that there aren't adjustments made in the selection process necessarily to to really take on board the things that that will make people successful. It still feels like it's um, it, it's a completely one way assessment for a lot of a lot of studios. They're they're just checking the person and looking for things and reasons to to get rid rather than um, accepting. Um, and also just just not not realizing that maybe the interview process that's been around for so many decades doesn't suit everybody and doesn't bring out the best in everybody um, especially perhaps if someone's neurodiverse for example that the setup that that studios can do to help there is significant and yet I don't think that's part and parcel of the thinking um, Emma is that something that you've started to put into your selection process yeah absolutely um, and again the, the the sessions with all the hiring managers at CA um, and then and those sessions you know they, they're for new hiring managers because the studio is and has been growing since I started in 2012 I think you know with I don't think we're ever going to stop um, those there, there were people that have been hiring for a very long time without having any sense of what good looks like um and it's been a journey really communicating with everybody with all levels of experience you know, even even up to a senior leadership team of you know, this, this is what good looks like but actually encourage them to think about the candidate experience and it's their job to bring the best out in the person that they're meeting it's not um it's not a do do you do you think that you are lucky enough to work at creative assembly actually we're really lucky that they want to come and work at creative assembly um and we should be able to give them enough room to bring their best selves to to that to that conversation whether that's someone who's really shy or neurodiverse or some of this is their first ever interview but actually, even people who are very experienced get very, very nervous. Um, and settling people in and making them feel comfortable um, as a hiring manager is a skill within itself. Yeah. And that's that's that that's so important. Mm. And you know, as we transition back towards you know thinking about having more face-to-face interviews, mm. um, something as simple as giving someone time to settle down provide them a glass yeah. of water and a, a smile rather than diving straight into asking lots of questions how's he um, said plus plus yeah I hear you. yeah um, but say so that decision making I mean, element of it as well that you that you mentioned um yes we are looking at the technical skills but as Philip said earlier what can, what can the person bring to the team what kind of balance can they provide mm. are they going to be more inquisitive are they going to challenge the way that we think within the team already um, and as a as a panel um, fielding in those wide range of thoughts of how they feel about the candidate um, and I quite often will go in and play devil's advocate with some of the responses I get on the feedback saying okay but 
you thought that about this person but why did you feel like that um particularly if we have a panel that um a four and perhaps three are male and one female and the female had a very different experience in the interview versus versus the main um and trying to really get them to think about why they feel that way about a candidate so just to, sorry, yeah, just add, sorry add one, one thing quickly and and just to back up what Emma was saying we, we often say to our hiring managers that you're not hiring a program you're not hiring an artist you're hiring a person so mm -hmm. understand who that person is not just what they represent in their technical skill and it sort of gets back to that theme about talking about the future when we when we talk about bringing someone on board we're not thinking about the problem that they're solving next month we're thinking about their career like what are they going to look like in three five you know ten years time hopefully at, within the studio and when you think along those time scales you start to evaluate their current skill set differently because you're not thinking so much about how they look today you're thinking of what's their potential in the future and what is their attitude towards unlocking that potential and you know what is their um and and that sort of starts to change the the way what I've often found is that there are there are some people who are told their entire life that this is, is an industry that they can work in, and so they come to university with a certain you know set of confidence or some 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 skill sets that they refine at uni. But there are other people who come to it quite late who haven't perhaps seen themselves in this, or and they have the potential to be a rock star, but they're just a little bit earlier on in their journey. And if you can mm -hmm. understand where someone's going to be in five and ten, then you can start to optimize for that outcome and. and that's yeah okay. just changes the way you evaluate and, talent and to add to that as well um i think we, we're talking about recruitment when um there's a need for new people to come in but actually mm. as your organization grows you've got this huge raft of amazing talent already within your organization you don't always need to bring in a new senior person or a new lead or even at their executive level start thinking about the people that you've already got within your teams and that comes down to being a really good lead and being a great lead people of knowing and understanding the potential and the passions for the teams you already have so when somebody leaves or you have an opportunity to grow your team think about the team that you already have because you're giving them an opportunity to progress and grow their own career so internal recruitment um, and internal mobility is becoming more and more important especially if you are bringing through lots of graduates you need to give them somewhere to go because if mm. they don't grow in your organization they will grow somewhere mm. else so i think just just really quickly on that then so we've talked about really assessing for growth rather than just today um but again from a very practical perspective don't um, don't close the door to people really early just because, for example, they couldn't find your building or they uh, they were a little bit late because something happened. Um, some of the things that we're encouraging now are to give photographs of where to go, give a photo of the reception desk if they're going face to face. Um, just be so specific because then you're working with everybody, not just working with those who can work things out, you know, really easily. And it just takes that pressure off the very, very first experience that they have with you. Um, so there are some really, really big practical things that people can do to help, not just you know, deselect immediately. Um, just also Liz, sorry, sorry. Uh, final point on selection as well. And uh, we've been talking about um, noticing we're trying to 
um, expand what we like about people and how we look at it. And I think it's equally as important to understand what it is that we don't like about certain individual because that usually triggers a value and, and sometimes very often you don't like them for the very reason that they're different and it's actually that that you should be appreciating. Um, so, so looking for and, and asking yourself what it is that you don't like is important as well. Yeah, that that's um, that that's a brilliant point, isn't it? Because um, if you're hiring for values, you can still be unconscious and, and biased in your in your value selection as well. So, yeah, really. Um, one thing I remember, Philip, you and I talking about was. The, the management of diversity as well. Um, so just hold that thought. Um, Rena, how we, we sort of touched on obstacles a little bit earlier and, and yes, unconscious bias and, and yes, we might all look the same or perhaps we've all gone to the same uni and that's the state of our studio at the moment. So we want to do something about that. Um, what if we then hire fantastic diverse people but actually it causes a bit of friction. Is that something that you've experienced? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, um, and I always say a little bit of friction is good. <laughs> That's what we want. Um, and when you listen to um, any, any kind of scholars or TED, TEDx speakers about best decisions, they always say that uh, the best decision that comes out of a little bit of an argument or, or, as you say, friction and what you need to allow for in your team environment is for that to exist within a framework, within the confines of your values, of, of your team values or your organizational values so that we don't you know, start becoming personal if, if, if things don't quite uh, develop in, in the way that we want them to, but to allow for a genuine argument, a genuine sort of expression of opinions. Um, and and the, the, the more you subdue that, the less you're really foregoing the benefit of people's individual uh, experience. Mm. Philip, I think you said you'd had some tricky conversations over the years. <laughs> Uh, you, you definitely have to get comfortable having uncomfortable conversations. That's that's part of the, the job of any leader, I think. But uh, but um, Rena's one hundred percent right. Like when you have a whole bunch of very creative people from very different backgrounds together trying to solve creative problems, they're going to bang into each other. There's going to be sparks. But that's actually what creates the exciting ideas, and 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 that's what the creativity comes from. And but being, you have to give everyone a good foundation to, to give them the tool set to be able to have respectful communication and understand mm-hmm. where those boundaries are. Like we have a, have a code of conduct that we, everyone agrees to and, and, and thoroughly reads and, uh, and adheres to, and it sets out like what is acceptable in terms of uh, communication, feedback, and things like that, and you know, set those examples. And what, it's one thing to obviously have them written down there, but you have to live them day to day. You have to make sure you're holding everyone to account, even yourself and, and, and your other leaders making sure that it's consistently applied so that people see that there is a, a, a framework here that they can operate within. And if they stay within that, then they'll be supported. Um, and I think that allows people to start to express themselves more, more freely. But yeah, there will be friction. I, I don't think there's any, any creative uh, studio in the world that doesn't have some level of friction. <laughs> and I think it's up to the leaders to then um, make sure that when, when the friction exists and then the outcome is a good one, you can just um, point it out, acknowledge it out loud, say, see, this is the process that it takes and that's okay. And because then they acknowledge it as, as this is the new norm. And you get, they get better at it the more they do it, right? the more exposure they have to it. The, 
better they get at having those conversations. So um, we're kind of into our last five to 10 minutes of our panel and our time together. So I really want to be able to, um, to talk about some of the most impactful things that, that, that you guys have experienced and, and done within the studios. Um, I, I definitely, Philip, want to, if this is okay, um, to really quickly talk about four-day week. <laughs> how long have we got that's a yeah. well okay yeah no fair shout it, it's a very um i think it's a very now topic as well there's some work up in scotland that's uh, that's being a trial mm. at the moment um and i definitely think there's some sort of interest gathering especially um hopefully post-pandemic that we're talking about just really briefly is it, what what decision or what, what was the decision making around what you've you've sort of set up and what is it that you do? Yeah, so it was sort of the catalyst of the um, some changes that came through the through the pandemic. And when we when we moved to a more flexible work environment, so people could choose where and when they worked, we noticed that productivity actually went up quite a lot, and we were getting a lot more work out of people. And I've been angling for a four day work week for for a few years, and so we we ran a trial to say, um, you know, let's do this for three months, and then we'll we'll sit back and we'll look and we'll look at the data and see how what we do in four days measured against what we what we did in five and the data showed that productivity was the same as it was when we were all five days in the office and that everyone was much happier when they had a monday off every week and on the back of it we, we rolled that into a into a sort of a, a formal policy and that, now that's what we do um we kept salaries the same uh, and just reduced the day from the from the work week but on the flip side of that we, we noticed we started to attract a bunch more people who wouldn't have otherwise looked at our um, our company um, particularly parents, um, a lot of times they don't have, a, you know, childcare here is a little bit uh, expensive for, for some. You get some, part of it covered, but part of it not. So oftentimes parents have to have a day at, at home with their kids. And so having a day off in the week where you can look after your kids and then the, the parents can tag team the rest, it, it just meant that we suddenly got a lot of people coming into us that we, we would never otherwise have seen. And that was like a, a catalyst for another thing I, I put into the um, the hiring team and the talent management team we have is, is we started thinking you know, workplaces are really good at, at setting themselves up and being accommodating to parents. Um, but let's, let's apply that same logic and thinking to like chronic, managing chronic illness or, or managing um, sort of you know, mental illness or other things where the, the response needs to be the same in both situations. If someone needs to take short notice time off to pick up a sick kid, we, we're fine with that. We need to be fine with that if it's someone who needs to go and see a psychologist in the afternoon or, or to take a mental health day. So it was a catalyst for a few changes for us that have been really positive and again really changed the, the shape and the look of the of the types of candidates that we're applying to, to mighty kingdom so that's been really cool that's amazing thanks for sharing about that it's just it was uh, certainly not something that i've seen <laughs> in the industry in the uk so far so it's really great to to hear about it it's, it does it does challenge it, it's not without it's it's difficult it was mm. the, the transition because a lot of we, you know, we run Agile and all these methodologies. They're all based around a, a five-day work week. And you have a whole day of doing your sprint planning. Well, and you've only got four days a week. That's, a, that's you know, 25% of your, your time disappearing. So it took a while for us to adjust all our, 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 um, you know, our, our processes around it. But when we, when we sat down with everyone at the end of the trial and, and they had, we had a big meeting where everyone aired all the problems that they had, and this is wrong and this is wrong and this is harder and that's harder. And so we were like, okay, so who wants to go back to five? No one put their hand up. <laughs> everyone wanted four. So we made, we, we made it work, right? We got everyone yeah. involved in, in solving it and that's been fantastic. 
So, Rena, talk to us about um, it, the most practical and impactful things that, that companies can do to make DNI stick within the organisation. Oh, there's so many of them. I'll, I'll mention just a couple. I think um, just um, as a segue from what Philip was saying, um, is when you come up with any kind of policy for a, a specific group of people, um, I would say open up that policy to everyone. Um, and that has a mass impact. I mean, the example um, that comes to mind immediately is when, when our policies are developed solely for women um, because, because they are, let's say, carers and, and um, uh, look after their children and, and, and families as well. Um, so they're allowed to, to work more flexibly and, and they're allowed to do this and that that usually wouldn't be acceptable for everyone. Um, else, as soon as you open up that policy to everyone else, um, you, you bypass the, the potential of uh, stigmatizing uh, that group, in this case women, um, and also you're opening up something that, that will uh, make it much more accessible to everybody else and, and, and therefore become more productive. Um, and that works to encourage inclusion, obviously. The other thing that comes from a different sector that worked really well um, in to break down silos and, and, and create more sort of awareness of differences um, is a program that was pioneered, it's called Dare to Tell. And that was just program something quite unique or, or just something individual about themselves about their experience um, and and that way everybody can get to know people that they don't necessarily usually work with and it was so successful that it then moved to a dare to ask policy or um, platform where people had questions that perhaps they felt embarrassed about asking like um, like when we didn't want to ask Philip what time it was in Australia um, <laughs> those kind of things um, or, or you know somebody wanted always to know about Ramadan but never really had an opportunity mm. to find out so they would ask that question um, on video as well 30 seconds or so and then they would get some responses and it would create what it does is like I said it starts breaking down the silos that may exist but also connect people and give them a topic of conversation that, that perhaps they wouldn't have had before um, and that goes a long way to to starting to build inclusion so those are the two things I'll share today thank you Emma how do you feel about getting DNI to stick? Getting getting DNI to stick. Um, I think maybe just thinking about what, what it brings rather than the term DNI, because mm. they say, as as Rena said, it it kind of makes people feel like they're doing something wrong and it's a stick to beat people with, and it, it's not. It's just that we want to be better. We want to be more creative, more innovative, and have an industry for the future because you know we've got to hand it over to some other brilliant other creatives at some point so um we're thinking about the longer term here um so you know making it stick is when it is at the heart of what you do it's in it's weaved and threaded all the way through through your values um how you recruit people's personal values how you think about making your games about the people that are going to be playing your games um, and just having a wider world vision with it. So um, life experiences, meet new people, being self-aware and thinking about what it gives is what would make it stick rather than feeling like it's something that you have to do as well as making games and running your, your studio. 
it can be in everything that you do and if you have people that are really passionate about driving that change help them help you get there um because they it will be absolutely burning desire for them to want to do it and they will have that persistence and that patience and want to get there so it's it's a group effort absolutely philip anything to add before we finish that's a pretty that's a pretty comprehensive list i think that's you know my experience has been that to we, we bake it into our DNA. It's in, it's in everything that we do. It's in all our policies, it's in, it's in everywhere. So for someone to unpick it would be to undo everything that Mighty Kingdom is. And so that's makes it that it's very, very sticky within our organization. But, uh, and the, the one thing I've always found as well, it's sort of like when you start a new exercise regime, tell people that you're doing it, uh, hold, you know, uh, talk about it and, and share where you, where you are on your journey, uh, hold yourself accountable. And then it's very hard to take a step back <laughs> when you've made a big statement about where you're mm-hmm. gonna be. So um, I always encourage everyone to, to be bold and have a vision about where they want to be and don't be shy about sharing that. Um, so yeah, that's what I'd, I'd recommend. Making it a core part of what your studio is. It, as, as we've said many times here, it's not an either or situation. I'm, a, I'm definitely within our, within Mighty Kingdom. I'm the why not both guy. I do all the things all the time. So uh, you know, this is a thing that could be part of what you do and actually part of your success and a driver of your success. You do it in four days a week, Philip. it's for very busy days (laughs) (laughs) absolutely um emma rena philip i think the conversation has been absolutely fantastic and and as with all of these discussions we could have gone on for hours because it is a huge huge topic um but i really feel that i hope anyway that everybody who's watching this has really got some food for thought and got some things that they can do um, and also can see that there are studios that are really, really leading the way and being fantastic in this area and baking it into everything that you do. I thank you all so much for your contributions. And um, yeah, I hope to see you all in real life very, very soon. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. Thank you. Thank you.